a series of other activities. Some is the team and how the team functions. Some of it is the strategy and what your strategy is as a firm. And when I reflect on that experience I had in the 90s, we didn't have a strategy. I mean, our strategy was invest in internet companies. And, and there was no like underlying strategy about how we invested, what we invested in, how we made selections, what we did for the companies. It was just sort of this and very rapid, extremely fast, lots of stuff. So when we started Foundry in 2007, we had a very clear strategy around what we invested in. How we Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Brad Feld. Brad, thanks for making time. Jess, thanks for having me. So for people not familiar with Foundry and Techstars and your new book, can you give us the background? Sure. I was a co-founder of a venture fund called Foundry Group in 2007. Uh, we're based in Boulder, but we invest all around the U.S. 75% of our capital goes into direct investments in tech companies. 25% of our capital goes into other venture funds that are early stage, pre-seed and seed stage venture funds. Got about $2.5 billion under management across all the funds. And then I co-founded Techstars in 2006 with David Cohen, David Brown, and Jared Polis. Today, Techstars has about 300 employees makes about 500 investments each year at the pre-seed stage around the world via the accelerator programs we run. We run accelerators in about 30 different locations. We also have programs like Startup Week and Startup Weekend globally uh, that involve hundreds of thousands of people. So I've been very involved in entrepreneurship going back to when I started my first company in 1987 and been investing since 1994. That's fun. You know, last week we just had a a tech star family member. I don't know if you know Al Doan. But I do know Al. We just had Al on last week. so You learned all about quilts. <laughs> yeah, right? Man, that guy is funny. I, I, like, I think we might do a whole mini-series together now. So, so first thing, let's talk about this book. Let's talk about this, the startup community way. Sure. So I just came out with a new book, July. It's a sequel to a book that I wrote in 2012 called Startup Communities. I also came out with a second edition of, of Startup Communities at the same time. In 2012, when I wrote Startup Communities, the phrase didn't exist. And so part of me writing the book was as we were coming out of the global financial crisis in 2010, I started to think hard about entrepreneurship because people were talking about entrepreneurship and innovation as the way out of the global financial crisis. And, you know, as an investor and entrepreneur for many years, I'd been through plenty of cycles by that time. And I had moved to Boulder with my wife, Amy Batchelor, in 1995. And I, I never subscribed to the idea that was prevalent at the time, which is if you wanted to start a tech company, you really needed to move to the Bay Area. That was the place you should go if you wanted to start a tech company. And in 2010, an article came out that said something akin to innovation is the future, and the future of cities and the health of cities. And if you want to look at some examples, look at the Bay Area, which of course is not one city, but a lot of cities, New York, Boston, and Boulder. And Boulder was different because Boulder is only 100,000 people. So it was really tiny compared to those other three cities. That generated a, the book Startup Communities, which was a very, I would say, practical book. It was very anecdotal. It was not research-driven. 
It was very much storytelling and using Boulder as the example, not, not the story, but the example of how to build a startup community anywhere in the world. And on the back of that, I built a premise that you could build a startup community anywhere in the world. Fast forward to 2020, and the phrase startup community is now globally used to describe the phenomenon that's going on, which is pretty awesome. In addition, the idea that you have to move to the Bay Area to start a company is gone. Amazing companies have been built all over the world, not just in the United States, but everywhere. The notion that the U.S. is dominant in entrepreneurship is no longer a thing. There's enormous successes in lots of other places around the world. And, and really, the democratization of entrepreneurship has occurred as a phenomena for both new company creation and the health and growth and development of innovative cultures and, and at the core of cities. So this book is the sequel to that first book. And it really started out with the idea of answering the question, what now? My co-author and I, Ian Hathaway, 2017, from people who had been working on startup communities for you know, four or five years, six years, seven years. And we're saying, well, what should we do next? And we, we tried to write the book with that in mind, uh, which was kind of ironic because one of the principles of the Boulder thesis from the first book is that you have to have a very, very long-term view, at least 20 years. And I've modified that to have at least 20 years into the future. So you're constantly looking forward 20 years. So in some ways, it was a little bit interesting, you know, intellectually interesting that people were starting to say after five or six years, so, so what now? We wrote a first version of the book in 2017, and we threw it away in 2018. It totally sucked. We were just really unhappy, unhappy with it. We'd written about 40,000 words. We're like, this, this, is not, this is not worthy of anything. And in 2018, as we were struggling with things, Ian came up with the idea that a startup community was a complex adaptive system. And we decided to then build the notion of the book around how complex adaptive systems work. And we shortened the phrase to complex systems so it wasn't as ponderous. And, and essentially wrote you know, a book that used the, the idea of complexity theory and how complex systems work to describe how startup communities grow and evolve. We reorganized that book in the end of 2019 after getting a bunch of feedback from early readers, and we ended up restructuring it so that we were able to really have a powerful sort of way through it so it didn't feel intellectual and ponderous. It wasn't this, here's all this complexity theory, and here's all this intellectual academic, and oh, by the way, here's your startup community. It was really very much more practical advice of how to think about growing and developing startup community using and introducing the ideas and the language from complexity theory underneath it. And in the end, we came out with a book, you know, in the middle of the collision of, at least in the United States, uh, four massive complex systems that were a function of the COVID crisis that were all colliding, right? Those four complex systems are, and, and the crises that ensued were a health crisis uh, which triggered an economic crisis, which is triggering a mental health crisis, which amplified a racial equity crisis. And all four of these crises are examples of complex systems. So in some ways, the book ends up having a lot of pragmatic impact for thinking about our current reality, not just startup communities. Yeah. Well, everybody should be going to Amazon and looking up the startup community way. Question for you. Do we have any hope for an audio version coming out? For sure. Yeah? So... My experience with audio versions are they typically lag the published book by a couple of months. So my guess is by sometime in September, October, there should be an audio version. Wiley is the publisher and they're taking care of that. Um, I'd read a few of the books that I wrote. I've, this is the seventh book I've written. 
and I had fun doing the first one. The second one I did not have fun doing, and I decided to let professional readers do it. Some of the, some of the feedback I also got was one of the books, it was fun for people to hear me read. It was a book I wrote with my wife, Amy, called Startup Life. So it was a very personal book. But another one, people were like, eh, you should have probably had a professional do that. <laughs> That's funny. So I'm, I'm interested in your thought on this. With all the success you've had, why take the time to write books? What is it about books that you decided to, to put that level of pain and effort into? Well, I've loved to write for a long time. And a big part of you know my daily work is writing anyway. And I've written a blog for many years, going back to 2004, back you know well before VCs you know, blogged and tweeted and prognosticated. Well, they prognosticated about everything, but they did it through other channels. And for me, I learned by writing. And I learned by reading. So the, 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 the dynamic of having to write it down and having to work through the thoughts is very powerful for me. In addition, one of the things that I, I've experienced over the years is that a lot of stuff that I write, when I write it privately, it's fine. When I write it publicly, I get a lot of feedback that actually amplifies my learning. And so, you know, the rapid cycle learning of a daily blog and getting feedback from the daily blog over a long period of time has caused me to learn and figure out a lot of things that I might not otherwise have, have thought about. It also sends me down different paths when I'm trying to learn something new. So for example, recently I've, I've blogged a lot around both gender equity and racial equity issues and gotten a lot of feedback to learn new things that I hadn't really, I knew nothing about and to read stuff that I didn't know any, you know, I wasn't exposed to prior. And so for me, that dynamic is fundamental to my own learning. A book is a long form version of that. So, you know, writing a daily blog is uh, a habit, but it's not a, it's not an investment. No, it takes 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes if it's, you know, a particularly long one, but it's, it's not, it's the thing you do each day. You know, it's not quite like brushing your teeth, but it's a, you get in a habit and you just sort of do it and it's whatever's on your mind. You don't have to, you don't have to really work through it. Writing a book, if anybody out there has written a book is really hard. And, uh, you know, I keep telling Amy after I, my wife, Amy, after I finish each book, I'm like, wow, that one was hard. And she says, that's the same thing you say after every marathon you run. Wow, that one was hard. You're like, yeah, I guess they're all hard. But they're different and they're different kinds of hard. And, you know, one, I think one does get better at the craft of writing, but the process of sorting out the idea and putting the idea in a cogent form that's accessible and that you're, you know, you're proud to put out there because you feel like it's additive. It is hard. And this is a good, you know, the startup community way is a good example of it. Literally the, you know, we're, the version that came out was version three. Version one, we threw away. It sucked. Version two, which we sent out to a bunch of eh, maybe 15, 20 friends, friendly readers, people that knew startup communities, people that knew us, people that would give us direct feedback, clear feedback and, and comprehensive feedback. The consistent feedback that came back, plenty of good, but the consistent feedback that came back was the structure of this is not not good. Like people are not going to, they're going to get into chapter three and they're going to bounce out of the book. It's it's just not going to hold their attention. It's too, it's too hard. It's too hard to get into. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff in it. Here's some great stuff. Here's some great stuff. This could be better. Here's some more stuff. I disagree with this, but boy, it's so hard to get into. And when we restructured it and then ran that structure by a bunch of people, their feedback was a lot better. Right. So just even the process of trying to go from a thing that's just an idea to the final product generates an enormous amount of learning that, you know, now today in my own mental view of how the world works uh, is solidified in, in a way that wouldn't have been solidified if I hadn't written the book. Yeah, I, I'm writing my first book right now, and uh, it's an it's interesting hard. process. 
Yeah. I have to, I have to get your, I'll send you an advanced copy and get, tell me, have you tell me the structure isn't working, Jess. <laughs> happy, happy to look at it. Are, are you finding it? Are you finding it difficult to write? Or no, to write I, I had lost so much money in my twenties speculating that I became a real Warren Buffett devotee. And so I've actually like built courses on trying to make his principles more accessible for regular people. So going from seminars into a book and, and specifically how it applies to commercial real estate investing, which he doesn't do, but followers of his like Bruce Flatt from book Brookfield or whatever have done, you know, what I am finding is that I need to like pull it down, you know, like if this is going to help people who don't already know it, I need to quit talking like people already know it. You know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's, it's definitely a process. So I guess it's hard in the sense of the the information I feel like is spilling out of me, but the like making accessible, like not like preaching to people and fire hosing them with principles, but like realizing what stories are going to keep their attention enough. They want to find out what the principle is. Some of that stuff is taking more mental effort than I think I maybe expected. As, as someone who is utterly clueless about commercial real estate, I look forward to reading an early version of your book. <laughs> you know, I, I want to talk about funds for a minute. You know, there's so many, there's so many people that like the idea of having a fund. And uh, did you say you guys, you guys have invested two and a half billion so far? Yeah, thereabouts. So when you think of those kind of numbers that so many don't reach, what are some of the things that you think you did different? What do you attribute some of that success to? Well, I don't think the the raising of the money, by the way, is a success. The, the results that you generate from investing the money and the companies that, that emerge from that are the successes. Sure. And maybe in, as a milestone, maybe instead of success. Yeah. I, I, again, I just it's all. I think it's always worth clarifying because I think sure. a lot of and a lot of entrepreneurs end up thinking that you know it is a milestone to raise success to raise money. You know, for us, we raised our first fund in 2007 and we raised a 225 million dollar fund, and it was hard. I've been investing personally since 1994. I made a bunch of angel investments with my own money after I sold my first company. I had a very significant track record, positive track record. I ended up accidentally becoming part of a venture fund uh, pre-internet bubble that was originally wow. affiliated with SoftBank. That was a spin-out, a spin-out from SoftBank, uh, the Japanese company. Ended up being called Mobius Venture Capital. We had one very successful fund and then two funds that, one that was a debacle and then one that didn't do very well, but did kind of about as badly as everybody else did in that time period. It's basically, you know, roughly break even. And that firm ended up not raising another fund. So even though it raised a lot of money, and I think we raised total in that firm $2 billion or something like around there, we ended up over three funds, we ended up not raising a fourth fund. I think that's a key is that that it's a combination of a series of things. One is the outcomes, which are the returns, but then the returns are linked to a series of other activities. Some is the team and how the team functions. Some of it is the strategy and what your strategy is as a firm. And when I reflect on that experience I had in the 90s, we didn't have a strategy. I mean, our strategy was invest in internet companies. And, and there was no like underlying strategy about how we invested, what we invested in, how we made selections, what we did for the companies. It was just sort of this and very rapid, extremely fast, lots of stuff. So when we started Foundry in 2007, we had a very clear strategy around what we invested in, how we invested, how we selected companies, how we were going to spend time with them, what we were going to look like as an organization. And over, you know, now the last almost 14 years, we've been very consistent and we've evolved. So we didn't stay the same. We're not static, but we tried to stay very true to our values. 
And as we evolved, each evolution of what we did was very deliberate around our strengths. We experimented with different things. We tried some stuff that, you know, maybe this will be interesting. Maybe it won't be interesting. We'll try small things and sort of adjust from there. But I, I think we've stayed very, very consistent with how we approach the world and, and how we do things. And I think that's key for any investor, anybody who's trying to be a professional investor. It's, it's not that your strategy has to be the same for 50 years. It's that it has to have consistency. And, and it, when it changes and, and adjusts, it's not changing in reaction to something. It's changing because you've deliberately decided, okay, this is a good thing to add on to our strategy, or this is a thing we've been doing that's not working. We should stop doing this, or this thing is working. We should do more of this because we've really become experts at it. That's interesting. You know, maybe shifting gears to thinking about those successes and, and folks that you invest in. What, what are some of the premises? Like, what's the mandate that you guys are pursuing these days? So a couple of different things. One is, and again, we have evolved some. So this is, this is current, current view of our world. So as I said at the very beginning, about 25% of our capital is invested in other venture firms. And we've got a, a group of about a little bit over 30. And these are funds that are investing at the pre-seed and seed stages. So we used to invest at the pre-seed and seed stages. Now we really invest at the Series A, Series B stages. So we've moved upstream some in terms of timing of our investment, but we still have an enormous amount of exposure at the pre-seed and seed stage because of our investments in these other firms. Second, we've never had a deal flow problem. We've always had way more deal flow than we knew what to do with. But at some point, we, we realized, given how busy we were with our existing portfolio, that we had a filtering problem. And we didn't, we decided not to grow a big firm. This was another strategy of ours. So we have only partner level people on our team. And as a result, sort of we do all the work. So at some point we realized that we could get much better filtering and partner help with the, by making investments in these other funds and then partnering with them downstream in their investments in the things that were, were taking off. For us, this was not an inconsistent thing because we generally were very focused on the partner that we invested in anyway. See firms that we like to invest with. It wasn't that we were company focused and then sort of any VC firm. It was company plus also who the co-investors were and who the partners were. And then on a, on a company side, we had a set of themes that we've evolved, but we've more or less stuck to this notion of thematic investing. We define the themes very broadly in very, very horizontal ways. So they're not the next hot thing, but something that we think will last for 20 or 30 years. And we build a theme around it that's very clear, a thesis around the theme. And then, you know, we focus on becoming experts in that area. And the more investments we make in that theme, the more experts we become. And then on the entrepreneur side, we're focused on entrepreneurs who have, th you know, and companies that have three characteristics. The first is assuming it's in a theme and assuming it's, you know, with now, with now a partner fund. And just to clarify... By theme, would like would fintech be a theme? Is that or how would you? No, what's a theme? I'm glad you interrupted and asked the question. So fintech's a category, okay, in in our in our taxonomy. So a theme would be human con computer interaction or HCI. The way humans and computers interact is going to change over the next thirty years in the same way it's changed over the last thirty years. And there's lots of different things within that theme that we could get excited about, but it's again horizontal. Another example would be uh, a theme we call protocol, which are companies built on technology protocols. Email or the protocol SMTP would be an example of that. And, you know, you can look at many different types of companies that are built on top of protocols. The entirety of blockchain is a protocol. 
And so companies that are doing things in and around blockchain, regardless of what the token type is, regardless of what the algorithms are, is within our protocol theme. We have another thing called Glue. That's software uh, that connects machines to machines. So the entirety of the API universe, which also, by the way, overlaps with protocol, sort of fits within that theme of Glue. So we try to define these horizontally. And we do have a few fintech investments. And if you look at our fintech investments, one of our fintech investments is very much, both of them are glue related. And one of them is very much protocol related around ACH, right? And so they're, they're doing these very specific things. They also can have, we can have multiple characteristics in different themes when you start to go into a category, right? So you can look at a company that's a fintech company and say, wow, okay, that company can have characteristics of a marketplace, and it can have characteristics that are glue. And if you can actually figure out how to get both of those things in the business, you create more defensibility. Interesting. I, although I want to go back because you said there's three characteristics that you look for in an entrepreneur. You know, if it's within a theme, you're looking for three, three aspects of the, of the entrepreneur. I want to hear those. Sure. Well, so, so two are for the entrepreneur. One is the, the company and product. So the company and product is uh, whether or not we have an affinity uh, for the company or the product. And the key there is uh, we don't have to be daily users of it, but we have to care about it. And the reason we have to care about it is when everything's going fine, you know, it doesn't matter, which they always do in every company. You have to actually care. You have to care about the product. You have to care about the thing that's being built here. And if you don't, it's very, very hard to stay with it when things get very challenging. Second, we look for founders who are obsessed about what they're working on. And the way we define obsession is that they were put on planet Earth to do this particular thing. And not the only thing that they were put on planet Earth to do for the, their entirety of their life, but in this moment. And it's different than passion. I think a lot of people in entrepreneurship talk about passion. I think passion is way overrated, super easy to fake. If you're an extrovert, you're, you could be passionate about a bottle of water. But it's very, very hard to be obsessed about something you're, you're not obsessed about. And then the third is that the founders need to want to work with us as much as we want to work with them. It has to be both directions. If the founders are not into working with us or they just view us as generic VCs, or that's fine. I mean, no, no, not, not offended by it if we're not additive in their world, but, but we're not going to be good partners for them. And they're not going to, they're not going to be a, a company that values us. So th those three things end up being very qualitative, but it's sort of woven into everything that we look at. That's great. Well, hey, I know we're about up with the with part one here. Maybe as an, an ender, what's one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received? Well, my my favorite, which came from, and, and maybe the most powerful for me, which came from Len Fassler, who's one of my best friends and, and key mentor. He's one of the two guys that bought my first company, was at the, the darkest depths of the collapse of the internet bubble. We were co-chairman of a public company together, and we were really, really struggling, and you know, about to start another day that was just going to be a sucky, miserable day all day long on every dimension. And I was staying over at his house and he came up to me as I was sort of gnawing on a raw bagel, you know, <laughs> trying to get going for the day. And he just, you know, put his hands on my shoulder and says, you know, come on, Brad, suit up. They can't kill you and they can't eat you. And, <laughs> and, you know, just, just a good reminder, right, of the difference between, you know, business and something else. And that was a big one for me. The, the thing is, I've gotten older. I'm in my mid-50s now. And I'm, I'm not a religious person. You know, I, I grew up Jewish and I'm culturally Jewish. But I've, I've become very, very interested in the last handful of years philosophically in Buddhism and the notion of non-attachment. And 
as I dig deeper and deeper into it, as I get later in life, you know, the, the notion of non-attachment to the anything, it comes up more and more for me. And non-attachment is very different than attachment and detachment, right? Detachment is you don't sort of parlance. Uh, attachment, obviously, you really want a certain thing to happen uh, a certain way, or you don't want a certain thing to happen a certain way. Like you're very attached to the thing happening or not happening. Non-attachment is things are going to happen. <laughs> you know? it, it's not that you don't want certain outcomes, but you accept that they're going to happen. And and rather than attaching to it or detaching from it, you just engage with it. That that's fascinating. Have you have you got into the Stoics much at all, or like have you read? Yeah. Very- yeah. Have you read Ryan Holiday's The Obstacle is the Way? Love Ryan. So Ryan's uh, not a super close friend, but we're, we're friends from a distance. Met a couple of times. I think all of Ryan Holiday's books are excellent, including his early marketing books where he started to learn how to write. So if you if you get into Ryan Holiday, like reading his early books that were purely about marketing, I think the first two, it's good because you can see the evolution of him as a writer. And, you know, he, he really has become an extraordinary writer and has done a great job of making the Stoics contemporaries for entrepreneurs. I just did a uh, relatively recent podcast with Tim Ferriss, and we talked about that dynamic as well, sort of in the mix. Tim's a, a, a yeah, big of fan of, of Ryan's and, but... and a big fan of Stoicism. I have the next book that I have coming out just in the context of yeah. books is actually uh, a book about entrepreneurship and Nietzsche. Oh, yeah. And interestingly, there's a lot of similarities, not overlap, but similarities uh, and linkages between Stoicism and what Nietzsche came up with. And I think that, you know, Nietzsche is, is very misunderstood as a philosopher for lots of reasons, including the affiliation with what ended up being the affiliation with Nazis, which is not a legitimate affiliation. It was really an affiliation of his sister. But the dynamics with Nietzsche are such that he was really the modern bridge between contemporary philosophy and classical philosophy, and so much of it applies to entrepreneurship. You know, I, I'm, so I'm a real audiobook nerd. You know, if you don't count the like 300 plus books from the Jason Bourne genre, okay. <laughs> my like, in the nonfiction, it's maybe like 750 or 800 books in the last dozen years, okay. And I, I typically, and I go back and re-listen to them. So I typically do three or four books a week. And I am fascinated at the principles that I sh- see show up as a pattern of success in multiple areas. So you talk about it in Buddhism, you see it in Stoicism. If you read like Stephen Pressfield's books, like Gates of Fire about the Spartans, right? Or there's a really great book translated by Thomas Cleary called Training the Samurai Mind, which is translations of a bunch of samurai writings from the 1500s and 1600s. It is fascinating how many similarities there are. And, you know, one of my favorite books of all time, Man's Search for Meaning, you know, Viktor Frankl. And you just, there's so many of these themes that have been so helpful to the human condition, you know, in completely detached societies that, you know, makes me pay attention and go like, man, maybe I should be spending more time internalizing that. Well, maybe, maybe not. It sounds like you're internalizing a lot of it. And, you know, the, the fascinating thing, which plays out over and over again in human history is the question, you know, the, 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 the sort of collision between the questions of, is there any real progress and what does all this mean anyway? And, you know, when you go back and, and talk about, you know, many of these previous, you know, different cultures, different writings, evolution of thought and the things that persist 
and the lessons that persist and appeal. And then you look at our current condition as a species and you think about our current condition as, you know, as a species in August of 2020, right, in the midst of the COVID crisis. And, you know, the incredible disparity throughout our society, not on, on kind of all dimensions, right? Not just economics, not just equity, whether it's equity on racial equity, gender equity, socioeconomic equity. You look at the sort of dislocation between, you know, the public markets and, you know, the massive unemployment rate. You look at the, the cultural stress we're going through as a society and the stigma that we have as a society around things like addressing mental health. You think about people's magical thinking uh, that's front and center, you know, oh, you know, K through 12 will be just fine in the fall. Kids will go back to school, no problem. Yeah, college kids will go back to college and they for sure won't get together without, you know, masks and they for sure won't party and they for sure won't have COVID infections all over campus. Like just magical thinking. And, and is that any different than it ever was in terms of our society? And how do you then in the context of that craft a healthy life as an individual? And what does that mean? And uh, healthy, pick your adjective, healthy, happy, successful, right? <laughs> well, and, and I actually, Meaningful. yeah, well, and I see so much of like the test of life as overcoming so many of the things that have affected the human condition, regardless of technology, regardless of the age. And so for me, like I have such a, I have such a fascination with, you know, uncommonly high performers. That's, you know, basically what this whole show is about. Right. And so as I look at those folks who I'm impressed with the progress they made personally, it makes me more and more interested in the vehicles they used, you know, mental models and otherwise to get there. And, uh, you know, that ability to, I, I think for me, especially like I can get wrapped up in my own ambition. And so these people who they can detach in a way as, as almost a helpfulness to provide service to others is, is a really interesting concept of like this balance being between professional ambition and excellence and high attainment and, you know, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett giving so much of their capital away, you know, instead of buying the, the new biggest yacht in the world, you know, anyways, that, that's a personal interest for me. Well, it's, I think, look, I, I commend it because it comes back to your own search, you know, to, to steal a title, right? Your own search for meaning. And whether it's easy to say one accepts this, but it's hard to actually accept it when you say it out loud. Like, do, do we all accept that in the end we die, right? And as a species, we've created all kinds of narratives about what happens, quote, at the end. And lots of rationalization, justification along the way. But if you acknowledge that we are, you know, we, we die and that's the end and that our moment in time and our moment in history is insignificant, insignificant in terms of the, the arc of the existence of the universe. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, like those, are, those are hard things to process. And, you know, lots of human metaphors like, well, we're just like ants except, well, I, I, you know, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> You know, are we are we in one of an infinite number of parallel universes against the backdrop of ambition, which is, is a good word. And there's a phrase that Jerry Colonna and I bounced around a couple of years ago. Jerry's a longtime friend. He has a company called Reboot, is I think the best CEO coach in the world, and was a very successful venture capitalist. He partnered with Fred Wilson in the 90s at their first firm, uh, Flatiron Partners. 
And Jerry and I were sitting around one day just talking about the idea of striving and what striving meant. And I had made the statement to him, like, I think I'm done striving. It's maybe four or five years ago. And, and we talked about what that meant. Like, what does it mean to be done striving? Striving is not a bad thing. I tried to pick a pretty neutral word. You know, I think most people that are trying to accomplish something would say, yeah, I'm striving to, you know, run a faster marathon. I'm striving to, you know, have a successful business. I'm striving to make more money. I'm striving to have a successful relationship. And there's a sort of a moment where if you say, well, I'm not actually striving. I, I'm trying to exist and have the experience of existing, but that's different. All of a sudden, that shifts so many things in terms of what the meaning of the outcome is. And, you know, again, this is not a, you know, two o'clock in the morning, sitting around in college stoned kind of conversation, right? This is more of a, all right, as you've had success, as you're being a high performer, as you're accomplishing a lot, so what? And, you know, are you in an existence that you want? Are you doing the things that you want? Are you participating with people that feed you and that satisfy you? Or are you doing things that are, you know, short-term good, long-term destructive to what you're actually wanting in terms of what feeds your happiness? Yeah, I think those are some important questions that deserve a little, like, solitude. Like, you know, turn turn the phone off or leave the phone in the car and go for a walk in the woods and, you know, Indeed. sit somewhere quiet. Think about you're it. Not gonna, you're not going to find the answers to those questions on CNN or Fox News. <laughs> not so much. Well, okay, everybody, please tune in for for part two. We're gonna we're gonna keep discussing the the wide the wide wide world of Brad Feld here. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. <laughs>